Well, thank you so much, Mike, and praise band. What a joy it is to come and be with you here at Stones Hill Community Church today. Um, of course, you know that today we actually have uh, children's ministry during the service, and so that's a blessing, and that's the uh, explanation of the slide that was just up here. And so if your kids would like to go and be a part of that, then they're welcome to be a part of that today. And if we want to welcome especially some of the parents. Some of you parents have been at home. Um, I was talking to Steve Weaver, um, whom you, you know. He's uh, kind of a West Noble community um, part of us, you know. And he was announcing uh, the games for so many years at West Noble. Um, he's now at uh, Northridge Residence Home in Albion. And he was sharing with me that for a two-month period of time, those residents were not allowed out of their rooms for two months uh, period of time. So just imagine, um, now I think they're able to come out into group settings now, and I think he's actually giving a devotional today, so he would appreciate, he sends you greetings, and he would appreciate your prayer for him. Uh, but some of us maybe feel like we've been relegated just to our rooms for a long season, a long period. But now things are opening up a little more and uh, we're able to kind of get back to whatever normal is going to be. So we welcome you today. Um, today, if I could just succinctly state my topic and my theme, of course we're in a series called Sent. We are sent into the world to bear witness to the truth. And um, I'm going to continue that, that ser this series in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18, 1 through 11 is our passage for today. Um, and if I could succinctly state really the thesis or the objective of my time with you this morning. It is to propose to all of us that a gospel culture, a discipleship making culture is far greater and to be preferred to the cancel culture that we're hearing about and reading about today. Gospel culture, we want to create that. The church champions that. This is essential to our message. To, to, do, to make disciples, not to cancel, not to find something wrong with, and declare someone or some group or some name canceled, that's destructive and that does not going to go well for our history and a lot of other reasons, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. But we as a church are in an opportune time to elevate, to propose, to live out a discipleship, gospel-oriented culture. That's the key. That's what's going to see us through this this uh, cultural milieu that we are in, this, this uh, very confusing and difficult time of upheaval. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that and just clarify what, what I mean by gospel culture, discipleship culture, and what we mean when we talk about a cancel culture. And I want to talk to you a little bit about just personally encouraging you. I know that some of you have been through some tough places and, and you still are there. And I want to encourage you today because we're going to be talking about a guy, Apostle Paul, who came to a place in his life where he wanted to quit. In fact, if, uh, if you've ever said the words, Lord, I can't do this anymore. You ever said those words? Well, if you've ever said those words, you know emotionally where Apostle Paul was in his life. In fact, 
I would just say to you this morning, and I'll just hasten to the, just the, uh, my, my closing exhortation, I'll come back to this, and that is, do what you're called to do. Not everyone will understand. Not everyone will approve. Not everyone will applaud. Not everyone will affirm. Not everyone will celebrate. Not everyone will support. Not everyone will stay. Not everyone will encourage. Regardless, do what you're called to do. And that's what Paul did. And that's what we're invited to do. Do what you're called to do. Stay missional. Stay on target. What is the target? Well, we know our vision here is to lead everybody to God's forgiveness and see them restored to all that God created them to be. We could just put a word to that, discipleship. To be a disciple-making, gospel-cultural, facilitating church. Not a cancel culture. Bad deal. Okay? So this is our proposal. This is our, our uh, purpose here this morning. And here's the deal just on top of this thing. If, if, if we get rid of God and we get rid of truth, we lose our integration point. In philosophy, that's called philosophical disintegration. When you lose a purpose, when you lose your creator, when you lose the one who defines who we are and what we are, and the purpose of life, when we, when we eliminate him from our discussion, and so now we're going to define everything without God in it. And we're going to define everything without God's truth addressing it. And so now we're, we're going to define man without God. What is man? What is woman? What is marriage? What is a child in the womb? Who are the oppressed? Right? And if God can't answer that, and if the Bible can't address that, then we let governments or political entities or special protest movements begin to define those things. And when we allow them to define those things, we disintegrate because nobody's going to define it the way God says he wants it defined. And so government and political groups will define it. We disintegrate. We get perverse. We fall apart. We literally go insane and that's literally what you're what you're seeing happen in the world today you know what i think i'm going to do something bold i want to take my shirt uh, not my shirt off my coat off <laughs> some of you are like oh i've never seen this at church i'm going to shut down wireless just like that and There we go. I think uh, this will be a, a better move for us. And I'm going to slide over. All the OCD people that I'm not in the center, you're just going to have to live with it, okay? I'm a little slightly right. Slightly right. I hope you're okay. But I think this is going to go better for us. Okay? So that's what we're seeing today is disintegration. And so, uh, and sometimes, you know, guys like me get afraid. And we get a little, a little fearful, kind of like Paul got. 
in Acts 18, we get afraid. We, we, we get afraid to speak the truth because Christians are okay in the public arena, but if you start opening your mouth, it's not okay, you see. And so guys like me can get afraid and fearful. And what if they turn all the church people against you, Joey, for speaking truth? And what if the community starts applying pressure to your people and they, and they can't stand the pressure and they cave in because the cultural, the cultural values have so permeated our community in different lines of thought that now, now if we can somehow brand somebody as a racist, which is the unpardonable cultural sin today, if we can brand them as a racist, we can call it, put a name on a label on it, and now this is the thing you don't want to be. You don't want to be a racist, right? And so, so now we have a shift in the power of, of culture because nobody wants that label, and so everybody's going to shut up about it. And we're going to let cancel culture rule the day, you see. Well, no, that's not what we're going to do. And I'm not going to shut up, and I'm going to speak God's truth, in the loving spirit of Jesus. Amen? That's how I'm going to roll. For the glory of God. And so that's what I'm committed to. But I have to tell you sometimes it's scary. I'm just like Paul. I find a lot of connection in, personally in the text this week. Because when you see what was going on in Paul's world. You're going to understand why I say sometimes it's scary. It's scary. It's scary of what people might do. What they might say. Uh, when the cancel culture, the social justice mobs get on your trail, boy, it's a rough life, all right? And so it can be a rough life, and I don't want to create a rough life for, for, my, for my church family, but we have to be a repository of truth. We have to speak truth. If we don't champion the truth, who's going to champion it? And if we don't do it in the love of Jesus, who's going to do it, you see? And so you stand strong. You stand bold. For the word of truth. And when I speak the word of truth and endeavor to preach the word of truth, not Joey's ideas, the Bible's ideas, you stand on that. And don't bend, regardless of what people will, will try to impose 2020 sensitivities back into the past and back into the text. And they're going to start reinterpreting everything based on how it offends today, how it's stated today. They're even going to cancel Jesus for having 12 male disciples. Okay? We're getting there. We're not quite there yet, but it's going there. And so I want to tell you, you stand on truth. Stand on the truth. Don't let, don't let anybody persuade you otherwise. You be bold. You stand. You don't quit. Listen, Lord, I can't do this anymore. That's what we want to say. Do what you're called to do. Not everyone will understand. Not everyone will approve. Not everyone will applaud. Not everyone will affirm, will celebrate, or will support. Not everyone will stay. Not everyone will encourage. Do what you're called to do. That's my message. Now, uh, when we look at what was happening in Paul's life, we see on this second adventure journey or missionary journey, it's called, uh, Paul begins to experience some, some kickback, uh, some blowback, some pressure, some stress, some anxiety from what he's facing. Paul begins in Macedonia, and what happens there, he, he's beaten with rods and he's thrown into prison. 
he leaves, and Paul goes to Thessalonica. God is at work there. God's moving in a very powerful way. People are coming to faith in Christ. And then the city is set in uproar by another mob. And the cancel culture of Paul's day, they incite a riot, and they're seeking to take his life. And so he flees in the night to save his life. He flees to a little town called Berea. You can go check my history here and read chapters prior to chapter 18 of Acts. I'm just giving you a quick summary. And the church is being established incredibly in Berea. And the cancel mob is coming, and they come over from Thessalonica, the town from which he was just driven out. And now they're going to graffiti, in a kind of a figurative way, they're going to graffiti over the message of Paul. And they're going to tell everybody how horrible it is in a cult-like, manipulative fashion. They're going to manipulate the Apostle Paul and his message, and they're going to drive him out of another town. And sure enough, they do that. Paul goes to Athens. He lays low for a little while. I talked to you about that last week. You can't keep Apostle Paul quiet for very long. And so he boldly, he just something in him rises up, even though he's kind of fearful and he's tired of getting beaten up. He still just has a passion for truth and for the word of God, for the story of Jesus and the transformational power of the gospel. So without fear, he steps into that again and he, does, he has a lukewarm, mediocre response in Athens, and so he heads out of town after about three or four weeks there. Uh, Silas and Timothy meet up with him finally. He recommissions them to take messages to a couple of different church communities. Silas goes to Philippi, and uh, Timothy goes to Thessalonica, and they bear messages from Paul to them, and then they're going to come back and meet Paul in a little town called, actually a big town, big city called Corinth. And that's where we find ourselves today. He's in Corinth. And I believe with every new convert, with every advance, with every Bible study and small group meeting that started out in the synagogue, it moves over to the house next door because a church, it goes from synagogue to church because Jesus was the gospel culture, the discipleship culture was taking hold, people were seeing the truth of Jesus, and Paul was like, is there going to be another riot? Is another angry mob of, of, of protesters going to show up on my doorstep? Another painful beating, another night in jail, like he had to spend in the Philippian jail in Acts 16. He's getting afraid. He's afraid. We're going to see what God does for him, verses 9 through uh, 10 and 11, just a second. Jesus shows up in an incredible way. And not only that, but we're going to look at something very uh, dramatic that he does in Acts uh, 18, verse 6, in this passage. But let's just start at verse 1, if, if we could, slide number 2, if you would. And so, after this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. It's about 50 miles away, 200,000 people, you heard me right, all the commentators will agree, 200,000 people, population in this town of Corinth. It was a, an economic boom town. I'm going to leave out details as to why it was in the interest of time. But Corinth was also a, the, sensual, the sensual capital of the world. The Corinthians had at least 1,000 religious 
prostitutes that worked in their city. Why do I say that? If you'll pull up slide number uh, nine for me. Slide number nine for me. See, what would happen in this first century world if you had babies that you did not want? You would put them on the stoop. And then people would come along, the slave traders, the, the cult leaders, okay, they would come along and they would snag, snag up these little girls, many times little girls, because girls had trouble carrying on the family name because of marriage and other things, so we won't get into that, but that's, what, that's the thought process. Many times it's little girls. They would take these little girls, go up on top of that mountain here. It's called the Acro Corinth, about uh, 1,900 feet in elevation, big wonder of the world temple on top of that thing and they would raise these little girls to reenact the love of the goddess of Aphrodite and Aphrodite in Greek Venus in in uh, the Roman world the same deity and then they at night they would release these these uh, a thousand prostitutes down into the the town of Corinth, which you're looking at the ancient remains of Corinth right there, and the famous Corinthian uh, columns, you know, with still an architectural type that people use in their homes and things. You can see it right here. And so they would come down from the Acro Corinth and, at night, and all the sailors and all the visitors and the 200,000-some-odd residents of Corinth would imbibe, and uh, they would reenact this fertility cult right over the city. And Paul steps into this city. Single man by himself, lonely and afraid. Talk about temptation, I'm sure he faced it. In fact, it takes Paul two, not one, but two New Testament letters to keep the Corinthians on the, on the path to life and health and family wholeness. It takes not one, but two lengthy letters of Paul once he leaves Corinth after a year and a half of ministry there, 18 months, to help them stay focused because of this kind of thing. And when you read what he writes in light of this context, you understand how important. Listen, church, we are sent into a hostile world. We're sent this is a series. We're sent into a hostile world that is hostile to Christ and the gospel and the truth of Jesus and the word of God. We are sent. It is so imperative that, we, that when we face these moral challenges, we stay strong and we stay focused because it, it, to cave in to a Corinthian lifestyle, which is exactly the word that they would use, they, to Corinthianize meant you would be to, to imbibe in immorality. And this was one of the big setbacks for the Corinthian community. And Paul's like, don't give up your moral authority. If we have any hope of being a positive moral witness in, the day, in today's climate, in the cancel culture of his day, the cancel culture of our day, we have to be on the up and up in our moral lives. And so I love you if you've had moral failings. We've all had our, the immoral things happen in our life. I love you. I care for you just like Paul. And, and, and you can, by God's grace, and one of the things that, that by God's grace helped Paul is that God sent into his life some friends. And that's what it takes sometimes to help us. And, and we read in... Uh, and so verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Verse 2, if you would go back 
for me. Thank you. There he met a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. This is one of the golden couples of the Bible, Aquila and Priscilla. That's a great name, rhyming name, you know. So I don't know. They just go together, right? They just go together. And this is a married couple. And God sent a married couple into Paul's life to help him face these moral challenges, undoubtedly, that he faced. Okay? And so they had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, right? And, and that's a Roman name. So, so Aquila was a Jew. He married Priscilla, who was a Roman. But Claudius hated Christianity. He hated Judaism. And so he had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. He ruled about 41 to 54 A.D., uh, all right? And so in 41 A.D., Emperor Claudius prohibited the Jews from gathering together in Rome, kind of like what's happening in California, where if you guys are going to gather, we're going to cut your electric off. We're going to shut down your utilities. You're going to gather and defy the governor's orders. That's what's going on. It was the same stuff. It's the same stuff. Okay, that Paul was facing, the Jews were facing, the, and, they, and Claudius was ticked because of all the argumentation and the fighting and the stirring because you had Christians in the city of Rome who were declaring a gospel culture, all right, a Jesus culture, a discipleship culture, and the Jewish cult didn't like it. And so now they're fighting, and there's upheaval, and Claudius just like, okay, you guys can't meet. That didn't work, so okay, you're out of the city. Leave the city of Rome. You Christians and you Jews, just get out of here because you're messing up our city. Right? And that's what happened. Aquila and Priscilla got the boot. All right? And uh, so I think what you're going to see, not only did, did Paul face moral challenges, he faced racial challenges. He faced ethnic challenges. He faced social class challenges. And so, uh, and what we see is the gospel was a message, a proclamation that you're in Christ now, and this is his message to the Corinthians. You're in Christ. That supersedes all other identities. Right? And, so, and, and the gospel says that you're stained by sin because you're human, but Christ has come into our life to give us a new identity and forgive our sin, to set us free. And, this was, and he's the Messiah. He's the special one that we are sent, but he was sent into the world with this incredible message. And it was a message, Paul talks in Corinthians, about reconciliation of, of, of the divided parties coming together in a new body called the ecclesia, the, the body of called out ones, the body of the church. And you know, I, I've been on Evergreen Library System, and I'm, I'm excited because they've got their app. They have their own app now. You don't have to go through the web-based uh, version of it. And I've consulted a lot of books on critical race theory. Okay, you've heard me talk about that. I'm not done with it. I'm still digging. All right? You've heard me talk about it. You know what every one of those books will teach you without fail? They will say you're stained, not that you're stained by sin because you're human. You're stained by sin because you're white. You're stained by sin because of the color of your skin. 
And because of that, you're the problem. Because you're an oppressor. And you oppress everybody. You white, straight, cisgender male you. Okay, that's the message. All of them. And this is what's taking hold. This is getting traction. It's getting traction. And it's what's fueling the cancel culture and other things. Listen, Paul faced it. You're not just stained by sin because you're human. You're, he's stained by sin because you're a Jew, Paul. Get out of Rome. Christians, they faced it. We're going to face it. That's how it goes. Okay? Listen, we're sent. Do what you're called to do. Bear witness to the truth, no matter how you're labeled, no matter what you're called. Okay, you're going to face this. And, and, and what's really mind-numbing to me is that there is no reconciliation if we are oppressed versus oppressor. And those two groups are, are set up to divide people into these adversarial tribes that are locked in a struggle for dominance. We're never going to have reconciliation if that is the worldview. And that is how we're going to break down life. See, that's cancel culture, gospel culture, discipleship cultures. No, 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 wait a second. There's a brand new identity that Jesus has spoken over humanity. It demotes every other identity. And that we are in Christ now. We're not just working from oppression to liberation. We are working, with, we have been infected our, our life has been diseased by sin and we're, we're we're set free through christ and confession we're set free in the great sacrifice of what he's done and now we can be reconciled to one another that's the gospel and that's what i'm committed to that's what we will proclaim but we're going to face racial challenges ethnic challenges social class challenges we're going to face moral challenges paul went to see them Aquila and Priscilla, verse 3, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And so all Jewish boys were taught a trade, and so if times got hard as it would for a church planner, you could still survive. And this is one of Paul's claims, is that they could listen to him because he did not demand that they pay him a salary when he planted these churches and things. A lot of the religious hucksters would would demand money from the people. And Paul said, I'm not going to do that. And so he worked as a tent maker. And so he had lodging and housing challenges. He had moral challenges. He had racial challenges. He had, he had these uh, uh, even religious uh, challenges. Verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Why in the world is a Greek in a, in a Jewish synagogue? They had a little place in the back where the Greeks could, could come in and listen. Talk about back-of-the-bus stuff. They were, Greeks were in the back. Okay? So he faces this social class stuff. He's got that challenge going on here. The religious challenges. All right? Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, they finally arrived. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. In other words, he stopped making tents for a time. And the gospel was so powerful the discipleship culture he was creating was gaining such traction that people were so sick of cancel culture. They were so sick of the woke cult. They were so sick of critical race theory. And when the God, 
Paul came into that city and he proclaimed the gospel. They responded. They were coming to Christ. Uh, and it's interesting because Silas came from uh, the church at Philippi. And Philippi, the Philippian church, is one of the few churches that supported Paul financially. And when you write, when you read the book of Philippians, that Paul writes this letter in response to their great gift that they gave him while he was in Corinth, so discouraged. And they sent this monetary gift. And Paul's like, he wrote about he he wrote joy he, he wrote about joy 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 rejoice all the time in the book of Philippians because he was really discouraged he was ready to quit he was ready to quit he was afraid he was fearful and they show up and now he just gives himself he's just like well I'm just going to step on the gas because God is opening the door and so he's testifying to the Jews that Jesus verse five Jesus was the Messiah. So we know that Paul has some financial challenges from, the, from all of this. Verse 6, But when they, the Jews, opposed Paul and became abusive, the Greek word is blaspheme, the root word for blaspheming. They were blaspheming Paul. They were blaspheming God. Who needs Paul's Jesus who needs Paul's gospel? Who needs the word of God? We don't need this guy, this religious huckster. And Paul shook out his clothes in protest. And he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, I think we got to be careful how we use this phrase, because it can come across, you know, if, if a, kank, a cranky Christian gets a hold of that phrase and uses it at the wrong time and wrong place, it could come across as really, really rough, really mean and hateful and spiteful, right? I mean, you can kind of see how this goes. You know, maybe you share the gospel with somebody and they say, no, I don't really have any interest. Well, your blood be on your own head. Okay, is that going to work? I don't think it is. Or maybe your teenager forgets to take out the trash. Your blood is going to be on your own head. Right? That's not going to work, is it? Okay? Somebody cut you off at the grocery store. Your blood is going to be on your own head. Okay? Now, look, I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. All right? Let's not get crazy with this. A little over the top, right? No, no, no. He has reached a place where... In this relationship, he has reasoned with them. He has taught them the gospel. He has shared Jesus. He has dealt with the word. He has walked them week after week after week. He's there for a year and a half. He's walked them through very carefully why he takes the viewpoints he takes on Jesus. And they said, no way, no deal. We reject Jesus. We're going to protest. And Jesus is not going to be part of our platform. We're excising God out of the platform. We don't need Jesus. We're going to define who man is and who woman is, what marriage is, and who, who, who's a baby, and who's an oppressor, and who's oppressed. We're going to define it, right? That's where they were. And so Paul does something very, very strategic here, very, very thought out. He's not being a baby about things, okay? Not being over the top. He's just reached a point of no return for these guys. I'm going to come back to verse 6 in a second. Okay. Then Paul left the synagogue 
and he went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. And so it's kind of interesting because he stomps out of the synagogue, let's say, and he goes about 10 feet over, and he goes in the house next door. And we know this because of the way that the architecture and the buildings and things were in Corinth. More than likely, the house next door shared the same wall as the synagogue wall. And so they think they got rid of Paul, but if they listen really closely, they're going to still hear the gospel in the house next door so they don't get away from it. Obviously, this created some relational challenges for Paul. So there's moral challenges in Corinth. There's racial challenges. There's ethnic challenges. There's social class challenges. There's religious challenges. There's financial challenges. There's relational challenges. We are sent into the world to proclaim a message, to live a message, to, to, to speak of identity in Christ that's been spoken over the world. But people will not receive it. Okay? But some will. Some will. Crispus, verse 8, the synagogue leader and his entire household believed in the Lord. This is a highly educated man. He believed in the Lord. If you read it in, later on in uh, chapter 18, he also lost his job. A lady had just lost her job this week because she decided, a medical doctor. Because she wanted to tell the truth about a vaccine, lost her job. Sometimes we want to tell the truth about Jesus, we might lose our jobs. Okay? Many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. That's major. So now you have the leader of the Jewish cult, and he's baptized. But now the pressure is ratcheting up. And so you're going to have a lot of abuse coming Paul's way. He senses it. He knows it's coming. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul. Because, see, Paul, doesn't, he's not wanting to get stoned again like he did in Lystra. He doesn't want to be beaten again and imprisoned again. He doesn't want to be blasphemed again and abused physically abused again he doesn't want to be the recipient of violence again and so he's afraid now this guy's been baptized now they're there's a there's a uh, i am on someone's hit list right there's a price on my head and what he's so discouraged and one night the lord spoke to paul in a vision how come he spoke to him at night he can't sleep you ever been there you can't sleep. You sit at the kitchen, kitchen table. You're not sleepy. You can't sleep. You got all these things going on in your head. That was Paul. He was afraid. The mob's coming after him. They're issuing their threats. People around him are going to start caving. Everybody's going to turn against Paul. He's got the greatest message in the world. He's speaking the greatest new identity humanity has ever discovered in Jesus. And the mob wants to shut him down. He's afraid. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe it's this climate you're in. Maybe it's a relational thing you're in. Maybe there's moral stuff, racial stuff, ethnic stuff, social stuff, religious stuff, relational stuff. Just like him. They're no different. His issues are our issues. He's afraid. He can't sleep. 
God says, Paul, just when he just when he just didn't know what else to do, Jesus shows up. Paul, do not be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Wow. Everybody's so afraid to speak. Oh, I don't want to be labeled. I've got to tweet a certain hashtag so everybody knows I'm not a racist. I've got to prove I'm not a racist. I'm going to tweet the hashtag. Everybody's so afraid, so fearful. Well, Paul got to thinking about it. He was afraid too. Okay? And Jesus says, come on, Paul. You don't be afraid. You keep on speaking. You do not be silent. Why? Verse 10. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city of 200,000 people that's... That's, that's uh, weighed down with the immorality that's so, so strong and so prevalent in the city and all these other racial issues in the city of Corinth. The opposition, Paul, is going to be fierce. It's going to be, the, the fight is going to be a, a very strong and fearful fight, but you're going to survive. And I've got a lot of people in Corinth that need to hear the gospel, and so you keep speaking it. Don't stop speaking it. You know, I think this promise was only for the city of Corinth because once he leaves Corinth and goes to other places, he starts getting beat up again. In fact, they take his head off in Rome. But, but Jesus said, you're in Corinth for the next year and a half. Nobody's going to touch you. I'm going to take care of you. Now you speak it. Maybe that's what you need to hear today. You speak truth. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to proclaim a some kind of a great uh, cataclysmic, your blood be on your own heads. No, no, no. You just speak truth. Speak truth. Let Jesus use that. Bear witness to the truth. If you don't want to kneel when they're doing special things before sports contests, don't kneel. If it's a violation of your conscience, don't kneel. You stand in the love of Jesus. Okay? If you have friends who feel compelled to kneel, don't be mean to them. You love them with the love of Jesus too. You don't withdraw your love. You are sent. You are sent. You are a Christ follower. You follow Jesus. You love Jesus. He is your number one. He is your priority. And he's given you a promise that I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Oh, you'll be criticized. And you'll be resisted. And maybe blasphemed. But, 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 but my hand is on you. And, and I have many people in this city and in the cities of the world who need to see a, a winsome, attractive, clear testimony of what the gospel really is. And what the discipleship culture that Paul so readily espouses, what that really looks like. You know, um, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year, and he, a year and a half, 
and he, and he was teaching them what? Teaching them what? The question? The word of God. Now, people get all up in my grill when I talk about the word of God being the lens. Everybody, well, it's not the only lens. There's other lenses. You have to have a lens to help you interpret all the other lenses of life. That's the Bible. Well, it's just one of many lenses. No, no. It's, you're, you're making a statement about how you see the Bible. If it's just one of my, among many lenses, then your, your worldview is going to be a discombobulation of a lot of, a lot of different things. It's not going to hang together. You'll be here on this issue, here on this issue, here on this issue. No, no, no. The Bible is your lens through which you evaluate all the other lenses. Okay? Paul said, I'm going to teach the word of God. That's what I'm going to speak. Did you know that there's one seminary now who says we deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible because it reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice? But how do you determine which is which is my question. They explain. Listen to me carefully. They explain. Biblical scholarship and critical theory help us to discern which messages are God's. Did you just hear what I said? See, it's going to go theological. It's going to go legal. It's even getting grammatical. That certain ways of saying things in a gram grammatically correct form is racist. Okay? This is why I'm saying to you, you're sent. You're sent to represent Jesus and the gospel and the beauty of a discipling community. This is who we are. This is what we are. This is what we are for. This is what we are creating. We're not canceling things. We're, we're creating something bigger and better and more bold. And that rings it rings true with the reality of life. It's substantiated by the word of God. See, this is a precious commodity in our day and time. And so they are saying, we will interpret the Bible now in light of biblical scholarship and critical theory. This is where we are. Okay? Sometimes we get afraid, don't we? We get fearful. Are you afraid? I'm not. I have been. Will, will you still love me if I tell you I've been afraid at times? I am. Sometimes. I'm afraid. I have seen people pull punches I never thought they would throw. And they do it in such a way as to divide and spread hate. Amazing the depths that people will go if an agenda is threatened, a God is challenged, or a worldview is confronted. You don't have to be a fan of Joey, but what I want you to be is a fan of the Word. Be a fan of the Word. It'll see you home. It's the lens to evaluate all the lenses. And when you get outside of it and start defining and constructing things the way you want to see them, there's a little philosophical phrase out of Philosophy 101. Your worldview is no longer existentially repugnant. What's that mean, Joey? You can't live it. Where it takes you 
will disintegrate you. And you'll be left holding the pieces of your unlivable life because you bought in to the worldview of a cancel culture and you based your life on it. And now your life's in shambles around you and you wonder what happened. Jesus steps into it. He says, come home. I'm truth. Let me give you the lens through which to view life. I'll set you free. Freedom is not the ability, it's not the, it's not the ability to go do what you want to do. Freedom is the power to do, no, to do what you know you ought to do. Freedom is not the ability to go do whatever it is you want to do, burn down buildings, torch police cruisers, etc., etc. It is not the ability to go do what you want to do. Freedom is the ability and the power to do what you know you ought to do. And Jesus says, let me in. Let me in. I'll give you the power to live a gospel culture life, a discipleship culture life where you're following Jesus and you're letting him define your world. When we go back to verse 6, slide number 3, when they, the Jews, opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest. We've heard a lot about protest. Paul does his own little protest. And he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It's interesting because in the Old Testament, there's two different phrases that were highly significant. One phrase was that your blood, a person who has blood on their hands, that's one of the phrases that's used. And so it means and it indicates that a person bears responsibility for the life and death of someone else. And so they have blood on their hands. So oftentimes we see people washing their hands after critical decisions as if to say, I'm washing the blood off of my hands and they've got blood on their hands. Well, when you have blood on your head, that's another phrase. And so a blood on your head is that you're responsible for your own demise. And Paul is saying to the cancel culture proponents of Corinth that the blood is on your head. In other words, you're responsible. You've heard the truth of Jesus. You've heard the truth of discipleship and gospel culture. And you'll stand before God one day and you'll have to give an account of how you've lived your life. And, and you can't assign blame to anybody else but yourself. Your blood is on your own head. He's not cursing them. He's just offering a disclaimer. You will have to live with the results of your worldview. And when you do, remember something. I tried to share with you a better way. You would have none of it. And with that, he shakes the dust off of his garments. Okay? And the hope, when people would do this, the hope is that they would repent. It wasn't mean and nasty and I hope you go to hell kind of thing. It's a, it's a listen, I've, I've I have divested myself of the responsibility God gave me. Now it's on you. You have to make decisions. And so he shakes out his garment as it were. He shakes out the dust of his, off of his garment as if to say, I don't want any of this cancel culture stuff attached to me and my worldview and my view of life. I'm going to shake it off. I don't want it clinging to me. I don't want this, this critical race theory lens worldview uh, 
in front of my eyesight and it's going to see everything. I'm going to see everything through oppressor versus oppressed lens. Shakes it off. No, no, I'm not going to let that impact my life. And he does it very, very dramatically. So today, I'm going to talk to you just a little more about of, of cancel culture. But I just want you, to, I want you to see this, that it's almost like in our own hearts and lives, we need to stage a protest where we say, I am not going to be sucked in. I'm going to stand. I'm going to speak in the love of Christ. I'm not being vortexed into this thing. You know, uh, what, what is cancel culture really? Maybe you're scratching your head. Well, it's really revenge culture. You read back into everything with 2020 sensitivities. And so you start canceling out the people that offend you. And so the, the current cancel culture climate, you know, uh, they will withdraw support for public figures, companies and businesses and groups. Um, they'll do this primarily on social media, but other ways, they do it in other ways. They will group shame, they will boycott, they will withdraw support. Uh, the protests are meant to prevent lectures from taking place where people want to give an opposing viewpoint. There will be open letters to demand someone be removed from a list of, of, uh, of names. There's coordinated action on social media to get another user banned. Uh, if you do something that deemed offensive or you identify something as racist, such as a monument, a movie, a book, social justice warriors, the thought police, and social media will come headhunting for you. And we get so afraid. Oh, I just can't, I just can't, I just can't have somebody say something bad about me on the internet. We're just like Paul. Sometimes I get that way. But I have to speak. And Jesus told me, Joey, don't worry, I got it. You're fine. There's many people in this city. There's many people in the world that need somebody that would just clearly articulate the truth. You be that person. But I still get afraid. But he's with me. He's with me. He's with you. Don't be afraid. Uh, so... It doesn't matter if George Washington unified a nation, that Thomas Jefferson wrote all men are created equal, that Abraham Lincoln ended slavery, that Teddy Roosevelt was the first president to dine with an African-American at the White House. It does not matter. Mount Rushmore is a supremacist act and must come down. Cancel culture. Question. What monument, what school name, what statue, what book publisher, what movie producer can be untainted? What can survive the scrutiny of a life with no blemishes in it? How would you like to come to a church with a pastor who espoused cancel culture and he's looking for stuff in your life so he can cancel? Oh, pastor, I have a song I want to... Uh, canceled, canceled. I have a testament. Canceled. I know about this. Canceled, canceled. Well, I have a Bible study. I, canceled. How would you like to attend a church? 
where it's a cancel culture versus a, a discipleship and a, a gospel culture. You see, you can't live the worldview that they're espousing. It's not existentially repugnant. You, they can't even live it out themselves, you see. And so now if literature that depicts prejudice is now banned, how can the Bible even survive? Because it has prejudice. You know, um, isn't the same, isn't, isn't, like when we look at American historical personalities, yes, they had flaws, Yet all of them still contributed a lot of good to our nation's progress. And quite honestly, we need to know history because if you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it. And so it's important that we know our history, that we know the virtues and the vices, and that's how we learn and pass on our story. And if we only honor perfect, saintly people of the past, I'm guessing that we'll only be left with a cross And even that is racist by cancel culture standards. Can you imagine a generation 200 years from now looking back on us and saying, oh, he supported a politician who endorsed the murder of an unborn child. How horrific. Take his name off of the street sign. Or she contributed to global warming by frequently traveling in a gasoline-driven automobile to work. She had the audacity to drive a a, a gasoline-powered engine to work every day. And it got really bad gas mileage. 200 years from now, they're going to say that. Let's take her name off the school. Take the placard off the wall. What a wicked person. Gasoline powered. See, I'm going to choose a better culture. I want you to choose a better culture. It's a gospel culture. The cancel culture says annihilate. The gospel culture says rehabilitate. The cancel culture says destroy. The gospel culture says redeem. In cancel culture, you are worthy of hate and slander. And and, and you should feel the consequences. You should lose your job. You should be forced to apologize. You should have your, your social media account suspended. That wouldn't be a bad thing probably for a lot of people, right? You should have to withdraw a hashtag such as Blue Lives Matter, as in the case of the murdered Texas police officer whose daughter was trying to remember his life. This is insane. When you excise God out of the agenda... Jesus doesn't matter. You're going to define everything the way you want to. Okay? Now you're going to cancel kindergarten, kindergarten cop movie because it, it's pro-police. And Arnold Schwarzenegger did a pretty good job. That's just this week's news. It's insane. It's not exi- ex- existentially repugnant. 
They can't even live their worldview. And they're going to make you subscribe to it. You know, it's a wonder that we get to still sing Amazing Grace. That guy was a slave trader that wrote the words of that. Why do we let Amazing Grace get sung and liked and favorited? Well, maybe it's because there's something bigger than cancel culture. That maybe God's grace is a little bigger. That the gospel is a little more powerful. That the discipleship goes a little deeper. You know, Jesus cautioned against surface judgments when we don't know all the facts. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so to all the cancel culture proponents, do you really want us to start analyzing the sin in your life and publicizing it? Can you live with your own worldview? I don't think one of them will sign up. You know, um, I saw this. Uh, the guy says, I've never regretted, number one, assuming the best about people. Number two, overlooking as much as possible. Number three, offering more encouragement than advice and criticism. And number four, remembering the log in my eye will always skew how I see my pain, disappointments, and other people. That's gospel culture. That's what I want. Assuming the best, overlooking as much as possible, offering encouragement more, more than advice or criticism. The gospel sets you free to do that. That's gospel culture. That's what we're creating. That's what we're about. That's what we want. And we can champion it because the world is getting so sick. Just shake the dust off of your ideology and your worldview. Shake that out of there. Because it's skewing everything. It's dividing people. The church has the message of reconciliation. And it's a gorgeous, beautiful message. So, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The gospel is not canceled. Love is not canceled. Jesus is not canceled. Church is not canceled. The gospel is alive. It's at work. You know, uh, when I talk about discipleship culture, I'm going, to hasten, I'm going to hasten to this conclusion. And then I'm going to share with you a Molotov cocktail story. Tragic, tragic story. And we're going to wrap it up. And so if you go to slide number five for me, slide number five. Uh, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Okay, you've been sent. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Does that feel like it reminds you of something that you just read in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11? If you go to slide number 10 for me, 
slide number 10 for me, what you're going to see is that when we look at the Great Commission and we lay that down beside Acts chapter 18, Jesus says go. In, in Acts 18.1, Paul goes. Jesus says make disciples. Paul does it in Acts 18.8. Jesus says baptizing them. Paul does it. And Jesus says teaching them. Paul does it in Acts 18.11. Jesus says I am with you always even to the end of the age. I wish I had a longer cord. All right. Even to the end of the age, God gives Paul the same promise. Does it sound familiar? You have been sent. You have been sent. Don't be quiet. Don't be silent. Clearly articulate the truth. What is the truth? It's the word of God. Who is the truth? It's the Savior. It's the gospel message. The world needs it. They're longing for it. They can't even live out the, the, the ramifications and the consequences of the worldview they espouse they have. You have been sent. You have been sent. Have an impact. Speak truth. Live truth. For if you don't say it, no one else will. Well, I need to wrap this up. And I want you to be encouraged. But I also want you to be sobered by the, this particular life and uh, the time that we're in, the season that we're in. And uh, slide number 11. Do worldviews matter? Do uh, beliefs matter? They sure do. And if you ever question it, you just ask Yuruj Raymond who you see on the slide in front of you. She's one of two young idealistic lawyers, and she got wrapped up in the protest movement. She threw a Molotov cocktail into an abandoned police car and burned it in New York City. And now she faces a minimum 35 years in a federal prison. She immigrated from Pakistan when she was four years of age. She lives currently, or did live, with her elderly mother in Bay Bridge, and she worked as an, a promising attorney at legal services in the Bronx, representing tenants without means in, in eviction proceedings. She was trying to solve social injustice in a practical way. She got caught up in the wrong ideology. You see, hear me carefully. Racial injustice or social injustice will never be solved by accusing people of privilege and supremacy. It will never solve anything. You can accuse, accuse, accuse. You're still left with the same position. Accusing people of supremacy and privilege will never resolve injustice. That's what you're going to see primarily on the media outlets of today. She, does, she didn't realize, she didn't, okay, she, she realized she's a product of her education. Before you jump down the justice system's throat, I want you to look at the educational systems because this is where she was trained. This is, this is how so many people are taught to think 
in their educational programs. She was taught to think this way. Let's burn it down. Let's, let's, let's dismantle the systems, the systems of oppression. Sometime around 1 a.m., Raymond apparently threw a Bud Light bottle filled with gasoline and lit with a toilet paper fuse through the broken window of a parked abandoned cop car that had already been vandalized. Police surveillance cameras recorded the act. It doesn't look good for Raymond. A photographer captured Raymond an instant before leaning out her window of her friend's town and country van. And he's driving, his head and gaze is tilted slightly away. And after the bomb ignited, it destroyed the console of the NYPD vehicle. And the two drove off, and the police gave chase, and they caught up with them, and they found the lighter and another Molotov cocktail in the passenger seat and the materials for making more in the back. More than 200 people were arrested in New York City on the night of May 29th through 30. And she and her friend, 31 and 32 years of age, were among them. Everybody else got released the next day. They didn't. He's a lawyer as well. Her friend was a lawyer, is a lawyer. They're charged with seven federal crimes, including arson, conspiracy, the commission of a crime of violence using a, a, destruct, a destructive device, a charge that carries, if they are convicted, a mandatory minimum sentence of 30 years. All the lawyers now, you know what that means, okay? Mandatory sentence of 30 years. Altogether, Raymond and Mattis, her accomplice, each faced non-negotiable sentences of 45 years to life. At a recent bail hearing, one of the prosecutors argued, these were lawyers, he said, who had every reason to know what they were doing was wrong and knew the consequences. Committing this crime required a fundamental change in mindset for them, a fundamental change in mindset. Do you know why Paul didn't toss Molotov cocktails into Jewish synagogues? That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to burn you down. I'm just going to give you one reason. I forgot. I know who made me. I know who he is. I know he says I am in Jesus. I know my worldview. I know the authority of the Bible. It's my lens. Get that stuff out of here. No room, no vacancy. Filled with Jesus. Living for Jesus. Making disciples for Jesus. Lifting up Jesus. All about Jesus. All about Jesus. And so a commentator on this incredible passage in this uh, incredible book of Corinthians writes it this way. And now I want you to listen as, a, as we approach the application, the final close. I want you to listen to me because I don't want that happening to you. I, I want you to align yourself with the right 
worldview, align yourself with the right culture. The gospel discipleship culture is far superior to the cancel culture and the protest culture of violence you're seeing today. Case in point. John Phillips, he's an outstanding British expositor. I'm going to let him be our word of conclusion here this morning. He says, here at Corinth, in the filth capital of the world, there were many hungry hearts. There were lonely people disillusioned by pleasure and worldliness. People who had drunk from Satan's broken cisterns and poisoned wells. Desperate people, people who were not only lost, but knew they were lost. There were sailors tired of lives of drunkenness and debauchery. There were the broken women, the castoffs of the temple, where sin was their daily bread. There were successful businessmen whose money could buy them everything but happiness. There were housewives struggling for a decent home life in a city as foul as Sodom, he says. There were young people whose ideals had been blighted by the diseased state of society in which they, in which they lived. Some were tired of Tinseltown, he says. The fleshly pleasures lost their attraction. Some were suffering deep guilt and an awful emptiness of soul. And then he writes these words. They were ready to receive Christ. Ready to receive Christ. And a little discouraged Jewish apostle who heard the whisper, who knew he was sent, I'll go to Corinth and see what God might do. Lord, I can't do this anymore. Do what you are called to do. Not everyone will understand. Not everyone will approve. Not everyone will applaud. Not everyone will affirm. Not everyone will celebrate. Not everyone will support. Not everyone will stay. Not everyone will encourage. Do what you're called to do. And just like the upper room on the night of post-resurrection evening of Jesus' appearance, he shows up and he says, all right, boys, line them up. They line up and he goes like this. Just like that. Thomas. Well, Thomas wasn't there. It was an next evening. Peter. James, your turn. Just like that. The text says he breathed on them. Why? I'm going to send you out. Church, get ready. I haven't lost my marbles. Here it is. This section. Right here. There it is. Right, right here. Okay. It's good people are far enough away. If I have bad breath, it's okay. Don't worry. I see some of you like, oh, man. Uh, no, no. It's okay. Far enough. Okay. Forget about COVID. I'm good. Okay. Okay. Right here. Ready? Line them up. Now go. Go do your job. No prayer today. That's the prayer. You get. Have a great day.